0: probably lost a little bit of momentum for a few years there, but I think that it's coming back strong partially because of the pandemic and the experience of providers that really saw their utilization plummet. But as you experience a downturn, more people and more businesses are really sensitized to that. And you're starting to hear that conversation pick up where people are saying, what are we getting for our healthcare dollar?
1: Pop Health Week is brought to you by Health Innovation Media. Health Innovation Media brings your brand narrative alive via original or value-added digitally curated content for omni-channel distribution and engagement. Connect with us at www.popupstudio.productions. And welcome everyone, I'm Greg Masters, Managing Director of Health Innovation Media and the producer and co-host of Pop Health Week. Joining me in the virtual studio is my partner, colleague, and lead co-host of Pop Health Week, Fred Goldstein, president of Accountable Health, LLC. On today's show, our guest is CC Connolly, president and CEO at the Alliance of Community Health Plans. ACHP notes they are the voice of America's top quality, non community-based health plans. ACHP advocates for policies and industry reforms that enhance the health of communities across the nation. And with that introduction, Fred, over to you, help us catch up with Cece's work at ACHP. Thanks so much, Greg. And Cece, welcome to Pop
2: Health Week.
0: It is great to be back with you, Fred.
2: It's a pleasure. It's been a while, Cece, but it's fantastic to finally get you on the show. You've obviously accomplished a whole bunch since the last time we spoke. So why don't you give our audience a little sense of your background?
0: Oh, goodness. Okay. Well, so really, my DNA is ink-stained wretch. As you know, Fred, 25 years in the news business, had a blast, did a little time at a couple of consulting firms, and then five and a half, almost six years ago, took over the Alliance of Community Health Plans. We are a national association based here in Washington, DC. So, yes, I'm also a swamp dweller. And our organization, our members, and our focus are really one in the same, which is that we believe very much in a model in healthcare that our health plans. And the providers working very closely together. So, our members are the nonprofit provider aligned community health plans. We believe in that model. We think that it is good for consumers and patients. And that's what we focus our advocacy on, which these days means really spending time getting folks back focused on value.
2: Fantastic. And in terms of membership, who are some of your typical members in the group?
0: Well, we have a number of the very large, prominent integrated systems around the country. The biggest, of course, being Kaiser Permanente, but also UPMC and Geisinger and Health Partners and Presbyterian and Scott and White in Texas. But then we also have groups of members, as I say, provider aligned. So there are community health plans that may not own hospitals, but are very close to the physician and delivery systems in their regions. So that could be an AVMED in Florida, Group Health Cooperative in Wisconsin, Martin's Point up in Maine, just to give you a few of them.
2: And so when you talk about you've got... Two models, in essence, I guess, the ones that are more like a Kaiser with the owned or their own physician provider groups and the others. And so they're an integrated delivery system in a sense. And so they work closer. Is that sort of the belief with the providers than, a say, a typical insurer?
0: Yes, we see that every day and um, those are the roots of our members. So a couple that I mentioned, Group Health Cooperative and Martin's Point, they don't own hospitals, for instance, but they have primary care and physician group practices within their entity. AvMed not owning any of those uh, delivery system assets, if you will, but they have these really tight connections and they just approach the business of healthcare very different. You know, the, the comparison I like to use is that typically in healthcare, you have the payers sitting on one side of the table, the providers sitting on the other side of the table, and they're, you know, constantly butting heads and fighting over who's gonna get paid what. But ours, they have their financial incentives aligned and they're all aligned the, around the patient and health outcomes. So instead of fighting over those dollars, they're trying to figure out how to be most efficient with the dollars. Mm
2: -hmm. And in terms of that, does that mean that more of these plans are working on value based agreements with their providers or are they still for majority under a fee for service type model?
0: You know, Fred, that number uh, has been steadily rising and the pandemic Probably accelerated a little bit of that movement, especially in those early months. We are a bit concerned, though, that especially Washington and policymakers over the last several years, they lost sight of the importance of moving from volume to value. And so we probably lost a little bit of momentum for a few years there. But I think that it's coming back strong, partially because of the pandemic and the experience of providers that really saw their utilization plummet. And as a result, their revenue plummet, which is Mm -hmm. our whole problem with fee for service medicine. But also, I think that as the pandemic subsides, policymakers are getting back to some of those core health reform issues.
2: That's interesting because I had seen, you know, some of the changes coming out of D.C. and there were pushes to more risk to providers and things like that, particularly through some of the ACO models. But you're saying that in essence, there's actually a greater move to value now than there was during the prior administration?
0: I think that there is a renewed interest and appreciation in Washington on affordability and value. And as you know, we've been at this for (laughs) a long while now. Interestingly, when the economy is good, and you have low unemployment, people have jobs, they have health insurance with their jobs. I don't think there's that same focus on healthcare costs and the burden of wasteful, inefficient healthcare. Um, But as you experience a downturn, more people and more businesses are really sensitized to that. And you're starting to hear that conversation pick up where people are saying, What are we getting for our healthcare dollar?
2: Yeah, and it's it's interesting. You know, you made, made a great point. It's about how do we focus on the costs and things. So do you have examples? I mean, everybody talks about we're going to save money. We're cutting costs. We're putting these services in place. This new plan is going to do X, Y, Z. Yet we continue to see it this upward trend. Are you seeing examples in any of your members of, of actually bending that or reducing that cost?
0: Yes. The word is telehealth. And I want to come back to that, Fred, <laughs> because I'm super bullish on that. But let me first say that in all of my years writing about or being involved in healthcare, this is the first time I have been able to answer yes to that question. And as you know, Nobody ever expected healthcare costs to go down, right? Our big hope was just to kind of control the rate of growth. We're but I bend the trend. <laughs> bend. That's right. That is right. And, and that was hard enough, believe me. But I, I mean, I sort of am pinching myself that I can tell you that we now have a, a handful of member companies that have rolled out this year um, these telehealth first. Products. And the premiums for those products are running five to I think 11% below comparative premiums for more of the traditional insurance products. I mean, I just had a conversation with Michael Carson, the president at Harvard Pilgrim. They rolled out the first of these in New England, and the premium is 8% below their standard HMO product.
2: That's incredible. Yeah, it really is. And and can you explain to our audience what you mean by telehealth first?
0: Yes, and each one has got a little bit of a variation, but the concept is that if you decide to purchase or sign up for one of these insurance plans, lots of your first interactions with the healthcare system would be virtual by phone, video, email, consult, those sorts of things. Naturally, if you need to be in person, if you and your doctor communicate and say, oh my gosh, yeah, we need to get an x-ray of this, or we need lab work, then you go in person. But what I think the pandemic really illustrated for so many people is that a lot of your engagement with your clinical team can be done in the same way that you and I are communicating right now. So much more convenient, don't have to leave your house. Uh, Think about if you've just got a question, you know, is this serious? Do I need to go running to the emergency department? So some of it might be some triage. A lot of it can be managing chronic conditions, Mm check-in, maybe you've downloaded some information off of a device. And the other one, of course, that is just incredible is the usage of virtual care for mental health. Mm -hmm. And through this crisis, I am not exaggerating when I say lifesaver.
2: Yeah, it's been unbelievable. One, the growth obviously, of issues associated with mental health, depression, anxiety from the pandemic itself and being stuck in your homes and the kids, Mm -hmm. and then the ability of the telehealth system to deliver an effective service obviously in that arena has been really fantastic to see and to watch that grow. When you think about that, and I think about the global healthcare system, I think, okay, we took eight to 11% out. Where did it come from? In other words, somebody's revenue was lowered Unless somebody's become more efficient and doesn't have an office space in the overhead. So, are these provider groups changing their practice patterns and behaviors? (laughs) Well,
0: I hope so. (laughs) And I think that some of the smart ones are. But, you know, unfortunately, this is where I do tend to worry a little bit that. Lots of the provider community are going to quickly revert back to in-person fee for service. Once you're in the building, you can go down the hall for some blood work and you can go up to the fifth floor for a full body scan and someplace else for a few other add-ons. You know, Fred, I'm I'm not doing the academic work, but I hope that the academic analysts are really scrutinizing this past year to dig into what was what was lost, what wasn't delivered. I have a theory that a certain amount of it, not all of it absolutely positively, but a certain amount of it were some of those extras, the duplication, the unnecessary, inappropriate, low-value kind of things. Now, of course, we also want to really study what happened to people who maybe had underlying conditions that were not detected or managed. Through the pandemic. And that's really, really hard to tease out. And I don't mean to make light of it because clearly there were there were those instances.
2: Yeah, I think there's some real issues regarding particularly screenings for various cancers that might not have occurred. And now you're identifying individuals at a much later state, which obviously is a terrible outcome uh, for for what we've seen. And you talked about telehealth some, and I know you're really supporting the Connect for Health Act of 2021, and there's a letter up on your website about it. Tell us about that and why you're supporting it.
0: Well, um, first of all, I've got to give a shout out to my ACHP policy team because they have been working really close with members on Capitol Hill and continuing to sort of refine that. And so I'm not going to be as detailed as some of them, but I'm glad folks can see all of this on our website. What I would tell you is that from an ACHP policy and advocacy perspective, we've kind of taken this conversation to the Hill and the Biden administration on a couple of levels. First preference is let's just maintain the terrific flexibilities that we've had through this public health emergency. We have essentially had a 14-month experience And it seems to have gone pretty darn well. So why would we want to go backward? Why would we start like theorizing about problems that have not been reported during this period? You know, however, we are realists when it comes to Washington. And we understand that might be asking a lot of policymakers So there are um, a couple of immediate things that really need to happen. One is, and I'm going to get slightly wonky here, but within Medicare Advantage, um, we need to include in risk adjustment, audio only visits. So that's when Nana is just talking on the telephone to her doctor because she doesn't have internet or a video screen. And we've got to make certain that all of those visits are captured.
1: And if you're just tuning into to Pop Health Week, our guest is C.C. Connolly, President and CEO at the Alliance of Community Health Plans, the voice of America's top quality, nonprofit, community-based health plans.
0: I'm thrilled to tell you, everyone we talk to in Congress gets this. Now they just have to sort of move on to the fix. But we're very optimistic about that. A lot of these other provisions... We could see it play out, Fred, that health companies are given one to two years beyond the public health emergency to continue this experiment, if you will. Not perfect, but we'd we'd be happy because it would be good
2: progress. One of the concerns, and Greg and I talk about this quite a bit, is each time we look at a new service. Like, okay, we want to allow voice, which, by the way, I think is great. I actually just did a voice visit with my physician, and it was incredible. I wrote back, I scored him five stars and everything. It was great. So I I really do think it, it works, and it works in certain situations, is this idea that we need the federal government to give us another CPT code to bill another service, which then just kind of adds on another layer to the onion. Whereas if we could switch that reimbursement to value-based and let the provider say, I'm going to do this by a voice call or I'm going to do this telehealth, we probably wouldn't create that ever-increasing spiral. Do you see it that same way? Oh,
0: completely. It is as if you and I scripted this, right? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, of course. I mean, we started this conversation on value and we believe in it and we think this is absolutely the perfect example where you want the clinical team and by the way it's not just md but it's all those other important players in your on your care team talking to you the patient and your family members about What's going to fit right today, tomorrow? What do we need for which kinds of things? Sometimes I just email with my doctor. It's a quick question. Bing, boom, bam, we're done. So the clinicians have got to have that flexibility. And we actually did, you know, speaking of wonky, we have got a white paper that says, we understand payment parity right now for telehealth. We're still in this transition period. However, we lay out two paths that you get to value, you get to telehealth within a value-based arrangement in three to five years. And we think that's pretty reasonable.
2: That's fantastic. One of the other areas I know that you focus on because your members are involved in is both Medicare and an area I really love, which is Medicaid. So how do we ensure equity for these telehealth and technology approaches for those within Medicaid or these rural or communities or those that are less fortunate?
0: Well, as you know, a lot of Medicaid comes down to state policy. So interestingly, even before the pandemic, there were some states that were pretty progressive when it came to permitting telehealth within the Medicaid program. And so that's terrific, because we already have some foundational work that's happened. Um, The other really nice thing, and we've got to give props to Congress and the administration for the big sum of money that's going to broadband can't happen fast enough because many of those populations, rural, underserved, but also frankly in a number of urban settings where they haven't got that. So that's going to be a big piece of the puzzle. But then we'd like to see it go one step further, and that is starting in whether it's Medicare but also Medicaid, quality ratings have got to start to incorporate access for underserved populations and health equity. And when you start looking at the overall quality of a health company based on everybody in the community, not just the white affluent folks, frankly then we're going to get serious.
2: So you just raised a fascinating point. I was involved in a a Medicare stars rating bias and discrimination working group. And is it your belief that we need to begin to allow plans to recognize the types of individuals within their plan that may be biasing their ability to get higher star ratings?
0: It is my hypothesis that... Any company is going to first go for low hanging fruit. And so, in healthcare, if you want high quality scores, you're going to start with those compliant patients that are tuned in, who are connected, who have the insurance, who can handle co pays, all of that stuff. And everything that we've seen and heard so far is that that then. Builds in a bias against people of color, in particular in this country. And so I think it's high time that we start looking for the right incentives that are gonna say to all of the players in healthcare, how are you reaching out to these folks and ensuring that they are getting appropriate care, culturally appropriate, when and where they need it, and we're gonna measure
2: it. Right. So in essence, what I I was getting is those health plans that say target various minority communities or more in Medicaid or something, or have a higher ratio in a certain uh, socioeconomic group or regional area, might have a tougher time achieving a higher star rating because they've started with a lower number to begin with. Is is, is that something that you as your group may be working on?
0: Um- Not that specific approach, although now I got to quickly send a note to our policy team because that's a really interesting idea. You know, I I think that this starts getting into some levels of complexity that really deserve, you know, some serious, serious research here. But what I would say is that ACHP philosophically does think that we need to start looking at data differently. We need to look at performance and health outcomes differently. And we need to recognize where some historical biases have contributed to these awful, awful gaps.
2: One of the other areas I applaud you on is the effort you're doing to try to push legislation regarding Medicaid and post-maternity coverage. Can you talk some about that issue?
0: Well, I can a little bit because we're supportive of that. Again, I think that anyone who's been a mom, knows a mom, has a mom, right? I mean, we all understand that's not just a discreet nine months and you're done <laughs> situation. And that postpartum health in particular uh, is so critical and has often been overlooked. I mean, even people started getting excited about maternity bundles, but most of those were just nine months. Now you're starting to see a different kind of thinking about moms as well as the newborn babies. But here I want to really give credit to our friends at ACAP, who I would say are even leading on this, but were very supportive.
2: Fantastic. Yeah. Having done high risk maternity programs in the Mississippi Delta, I can tell you the two months post was not enough time, you know. And so it's really important, I think, to be able to expand those benefits. Uh, Really a great effort to do that. And hopefully we'll see Congress uh, begin to push out. And I know they have not begin to get states to say, we're going to make those changes in our Medicaid benefits to cover those mothers. So that's really a fantastic area. What are some of the other things you're working on as you look on going forward with the group?
0: Well, we got to get back to drug pricing. You know, Thank you, pharmaceutical companies for these revolutionary vaccines. God bless, uh, really and truly. At the same time, that cannot be justification for the many, many decades of black box, you know, a black box pricing system, a failed market. Truly, there's not competition there. In fact, when you have a second drug come on to a market, you would think that the competition would drive prices down. It just gives everybody permission to just start creeping them up higher and higher. So I'm really pleased that our board of directors gave us the go-ahead to lobby for an entire package of reforms having to do with drug pricing. And we've been engaged in conversations on the Hill about this. And we do think, sadly, that it is time to give the HHS secretary power to negotiate on those highest priced drugs. And the reason I say sadly is that we and our members are believers in the free market and capitalism and competition, but you don't have that in the drug sector nowadays. So we're kind of this is almost like the desperation move to tell you the truth when you've got to call in government to to rescue a failed market. There are other provisions around Part D uh, reforms, around capping co payments, uh, also transparency, bringing more biosimilars onto the market. We see all of these kind of coming together you know, different pieces of the puzzle to start to get at what is now, you know, just a really
2: severe crunch. I know we're getting sort of close to the end. One question is, do you see, there's been this move now with direct contracting by CMS to providers, self-insured employers are direct contracting. Does that mean over time that the days of a health insurer may be numbered? (laughs) Well,
0: So first of all, let me say, I completely understand the reasoning uh, to head in the direction of direct contracting. It's pure and simple frustration with the current system. And I get it. I'm right there. I find it super frustrating, especially the duplication, the unnecessary care, the low value care, everything fee for service, perverse, misaligned incentives. I do think, however, that you know, to use the cliche, let's not throw the baby out with the bath water. Because again, if you look at, for instance, our community health plans, they tend to operate on margins one, 2%. You know, most of them will say to me, and that's a good year. But because of those relationships in the community, they play a vital role. They have It not just claims data, Fred, but they have such a better, complete understanding of an individual patient or a community, and they can bring that population health strategy in if we kind of address some of these other systemic problems.
2: I really think, you know, at the end of the day, it's going to be interesting to watch how this transitions through as people move this direction and some providers are buying practices and et cetera. So a fascinating time coming up. I really want to thank you for coming on, Cece. It's been great to catch up with you. There are a ton more areas we can go into. I would really uh, applaud the work you're doing. It's really fantastic to see it and hope to get you back on again.
0: Would love it anytime. Thanks to all of you for what you do.
1: It's our pleasure. Back to you, Greg. And thank you, Fred. That is the last word for today's broadcast. I want to thank Cece Connolly, President and CEO at the Alliance of Community Health Plans, the voice of America's top quality, nonprofit, community-based health plans, for her time and insights today. For more information on Cece and ACHP's work, go to www.achp.org or follow them on Twitter via at C.C. Connolly, that's C-E-C-I-C-O-N-N-O-L-L-Y, and at underscore A-C-H-P, respectively. And finally, if you're enjoying our work at Pop Health Week, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast platform of your choice, and do follow us on Twitter via at Pop Health Week. Bye now.